Today's reading is from Daniel chapter 4, verses 4 through 18, Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he, was, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold, a and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the, to, sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Deanna. That's a lot to read. That's not even the entire chapter. But we're going to summarize parts, and we're going we're to get through this whole thing, and I'm going to draw out the best parts of it to give you something to apply to our lives as Christians today. We've been going through the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel, living in Babylon. I love this graphic because the idea is we are living in that city. We live in the culture of Guam, and Daniel speaks to us. Today we're going to be talking about Nebuchadnezzar, who's a prideful man. In fact, I was reading a story about another very prideful man. His name was Napoleon. He was a French general. You probably heard of him. There's this thing called the Napoleon Complex, where you have this uh, immense amount of confidence and pride and bowl people over. And it was said of him when he came to fight against Wellington at the Battle of Waterloo, that the night before he gathered his uh, military leaders and advisors together and he said, we're going to put the artillery here and the cavalry there and the infantry there and this is how the battle's going to go and tomorrow 
Wellington will be a prisoner of the French. And as he began to walk away, one of his um, lower-ranking um, military leaders said to him, don't forget, man proposes, but God disposes. And that just infuriated him. He whipped around. He stood all five feet, two inches up like this, put his hand up, and he said, I tell you, Napoleon proposes, and Napoleon disposes. He was pretty confident in himself. But that night, God sent rain and hail and muddied up the, where they were going to be fighting. And at the end of the next day, after the battle, it was Napoleon who was the prisoner of Wellington. And this is pride. And that is a good way to introduce Nebuchadnezzar because he is also a very prideful man, as we've seen through this narrative. But most pastors, when they preach on this, and I was looking through a lot of what people do, they focus on the pride aspect. This is a lesson about pride and what it can do to you. But yesterday I changed. In fact, Jessica probably sent out the social media, said pride goeth before the fall was the name of the sermon. I changed it to God's pursuit of the sinner. Because there's something I saw in the passage that this is really a story about how God pursues sinners. And I have a question for you, because as we've gone through this, I've asked it before, is Nebuchadnezzar a Christian? Is he a believer? There have been times where Nebuchadnezzar, things have come out of his mouth where we've said, wow, is he a believer? That's something a Christian would say. And so that's what I'm going to focus on is God's pursuit of Nebuchadnezzar and in general, God's pursuit of the sinner. That's what this story is about. And we're going to see it in the first few verses here of chapter four. My first point is faith that rides on experience. Listen to these first three verses, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, if you take those words and put music to them, it would sound like a worship song. I mean, he's, he sounds like a Christian. He's attesting to the Most High God. He's talking about what God has done for him. And I just put these three summary points. You know, his experience, he's been changed by his experience. He just saw Christ in the fire with Daniel's three friends. Whoa, come out. Who is this? And, and at the end of the last chapter, he's saying to them, only your God can do that. And then before that, it was like, I'm troubled by this dream. Yet Daniel comes forward and gives the interpretation and relieves him of that. And these little experiences that he's had with God's agent, Daniel, and his three friends, and the encounters with, <clears throat> with the Most High God have brought about this measure of faith in him. And you see the experiences. He wants to tell everyone about it. This is like a a universal kind of thing because it's like the entire kingdom, all peoples, all nations, every language, he says. It would be like you turning on the TV and there's a president standing there saying, I, and he's attesting to the Most High God. That's the equivalent of what's happening right here. And he wants to proclaim what God has done. So there it is. Is he a Christian? Is he a believer? Is he a man of complete faith? I can tell you, you're definitely seeing measures of faith within him. But here's the problem, because he's got something inside of him that he might cover up that you may not see that is 
a danger to that faith. It can kill whatever measure of faith that's there. And that's why, to me, this is a story for everyone, because it's us. We all have some measure of faith. We've all made proclamations, you just sang, to the Most High God, you sound Christian, but inside of that heart of yours, we're really good about layering over things that are potentially faith killers. Because as we go through this story, you're going to see that, that even though he proclaims a measure of faith, there's also an aspect where he takes God and his word and he puts it over here and says, over here I'll proclaim, but I'm still the king. Over here I'm the master of my own domain. And in the same way that he says, you're God, oh, he's okay with dreams, but he can't handle the fire. He doubted that about God, but then he became a believer of that. There's still another layer within him that says, I have faith in myself more than God. Because you're going to see this pride come out. And the reality is, is that pride connects itself to really every sin. Because every sin, there's a measure of you saying, I'm not going to trust God's word on this. I'm going to trust my own wisdom or my own counsel. I, I'm going to take pride in what I know as the best way forward. And there's a way in which pride is present in every kind of sin. And what we see is, he has this um, faith that rides on these experiences, but there's something underneath that could endanger it. And so God's going to deal with it. And that's going to be true of all of us. He knows what's in your heart. He will come and try to sift it out. So I think my next slide here, that's a sifter. You got this box, see the grate, and there's all that sand and you throw these clumps of sand in and you shake it and all the sand falls through and it can reveal something that was hidden in the sand that you couldn't see before. So you think of this analogy, like my daughter's going to go play in a sandbox and hidden underneath the sand, you can't see it, is some sharp shards of glass. And so I want to get rid of that. So I'm going to shovel it into the sifter. I'm going to shake it out until I find that thing that could be potentially danger to my daughter and get rid of it. This is what God's going to do to Nebuchadnezzar, and it's what he does to us. There are things inside of us, thoughts, intentions, desires, that like that shard of grass are potentially dangerous to our faith in God. And he is going to sift it out of us and want to remove it. So the, the second point is the sifting work of God. And I'm going to tell you how sifting works. The first, the, way, the first way sifting works is that sifting happens on God's terms, not ours. Like we, when we know something's wrong, we go to the doctor and we say, hey, figure it out. Sift out the problem and tell me how to deal with it. But see, when it comes to sinful things that are hidden and Nebuchadnezzar's pride we don't go to God like that. God comes to us on his terms. And as you read the narration of the story, it happens on God's terms. It says, down, uh, my page turn. It says in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. It comes unexpected. He's not expecting God to start sifting something out of him. He's at ease. Later he says, I was laying in bed. He's in bed at ease enjoying prosperity and comfort. And God's looking down saying, there's something hidden in all that scene that could kill your faith in me. 
It comes on God's terms. When? At, at, in bed? At ease? How? In a dream or a vision? God chooses how. Sifting also reveals that old habits die hard. So, he says, as I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So, that's how God's going to sift him out. So, in verse 6, it says, I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. The magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known its interpretation. Though this section, Deanna already read. In some parts I'll reread like that, but what I want to see here is he's gone back to his old habits. Why would you go back to that group, the wise men? They have proven already to fall short of what you need in the situation. So I put here that uh, sifting will, re will reveal that old habits die hard. He is holding on to familiar failures, the wise men, and he's hoping in an empty resource. Because remember, their answer before in the, the first dream they dealt with that he had was, hey, these kind of answers, they only walk, with, they, they're up there with the gods, they don't walk in flesh down here, we, we don't have an answer. And why would you go back to that? And we are like that. We are going to go back to what's familiar to us. We're going to go try to find comfort, security, answers in the things that have, that, that, that's been, we found it in measures of that throughout our life and we go back to it. We, we don't go to God's word, which is where we should go. And so through this, God kind of reveals again, hey, you rely on things that, are, that have proven to be, to be empty and failed. And surprise, surprise, as Gomer Pyle would say, they don't know the answer. Now, this is a great line in verse 8. It says, at last, Daniel came. Here comes Daniel. Sifting happens also through God's ministers. Daniel is an agent of God. He's a minister living in that city. And so I'm going to pause for a second to tell you then about ministers that God uses. There's a great book out I've, long ago, I read it, uh, last name Trip called Instruments in the Hands of a Redeemer. And the idea is like we are all tools, we're, we're, we're imperfect tools, but God's perfect hand comes down around that tool and He uses us. We might think, I can't, I can't be used as a minister or a garden because, and whatever problems are in your life, but God uses us. He's going to use Daniel. and In fact, he's a, he's a pretty good tool, by the way. Remember, I've told you he's one of the few guys in the Bible that there's nothing negative said about him. He's got great integrity. But I want you to capture this because we all live in Babylon, and God's going to use us in ways to minister to the Nebuchadnezzars or lessers the Nebuchadnezzars in our culture. What do we find? Well, ministers have good reputations with integrity. We see that. As Deanna read through verse 8 and 9, she Nebuchadnezzar trusts him. It says, as he said, I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Nebuchadnezzar believes in his help. He says, there's no mystery that's too difficult for you. And he wants Nebuchadnezzar's help because he says, tell me, tell me the interpretation of this dream. And in a way, as I read through this, I thought about Peter wrote in one of his letters to the church. In the New Testament era, he said to Christians, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And then later in that letter, he says, but in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for, 
for reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And I think that those instructions of Peter, they can really shape our thinking for how to live in Babylon. This is what Daniel did. They came in. Remember all the interactions they've had? Been respectful with gentleness, right? They've had good reputations. They're ready to give an answer that comes out of their heart. And that should be our approach to how we live here in Guam or another Babylon that God might send you to. These are his ministers. They have integrity. They're ready to serve. Number two, ministers understand the culture. I thought it interesting in verse 8. Here's, here's Nebuchadnezzar, and he's saying, At last Daniel came before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God. Now, if you serve in Babylon and you minister to people, you're going to find that this happens. Because here's Nebuchadnezzar. We already saw over here, it looked like worship. The words coming out of your mouth point upward to the most high God. But then over here, you're holding on to your Babylonian God. You got two gods? You got two there? Now, <clears throat> in cultures, you might find this. There's a word called syncretism. And that's where you take kind of beliefs or values or even religious things from two different cultures. And they kind of come together into, into one person. And that's Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is having these experiences and he's expressing faith, but he still has got his Babylonian gods too. See, that's part of what, what God wants to drive out of him because putting your faith in these false gods and these false things can lead to the, 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 the suffocating and the killing of faith in the true God. You can't have two masters, Christ said. You'll either hate the one or serve the other. You can't have two. And so God's sifting kind of this out. And this happens here in Guam. I remember our foster daughter, when I lived here in the 90s, she came in and lived in our house. She became a Christian. I remember we were out hiking once, and we passed by this tree, and she said, be careful. I said, what? I said, that's a tatamona tree. I said, what's a tatamona tree? She said, oh. And she began to talk about the spirits of their ancestors that dwell there. And, and I, in my head, I'm going, that's not right. You might believe that, but it's not accurate. It's not true. And so we began to talk to her about those things. It comes out and we began to take God's word and apply it to that. Look, there's only two kinds of spirits, angels and demons. And what you're talking about doesn't sound like God's angels. And so we began to grapple with that. And this is what's happening with Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to have to draw out elements that are there that will not be compatible with faith. So you got to know the culture. I say that about the Tatamona because that's pertinent to Guam culture. But if I lived in another part of the world, I should know that culture so I could be able to do the same thing there. Ministers know the culture. They understand it. But ministers also care about the lost. Look what happens in verse 19. So Deanna read the, the dream. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, Give me the meaning of the dream. And then the first response out of Daniel in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Why is he alarmed? Because he knows the interpretation. He knows it's bad for Nebuchadnezzar. And you begin to see this concern that he has for Nebuchadnezzar. Later, 
when the interpretation is, is given in verse 27, he says, Oh, king, let my counsel be acceptable, acceptable, acceptable to you. Break off your sins. He cares about him. And, you know, I'm just going to tell you, that jumped out to me. Because I thought, would all of us be like that? You're serving the leader of the country. And you get a word. Something bad can happen. I can just see this flip-flop. There are some, some Christians, they're serving underneath Biden. And they're like, all right, it, it's going to get stuck to him. Go back to the last term and flip-flop it. There's some who are like serving underneath Trump. All right, don't like that guy. Something bad's going to happen to him. Does it matter, the leader? How about this? You're serving under Putin. All right, he's going to finally get it. He's doing bad stuff. But Nebuchadnezzar is Putin. He was bad. In fact, part of the counsel given is you've got to be gracious to those you're actually oppressing. Could you live under someone like that? You're serving them, and you're an agent of God, a witness, and then the dream comes through, and it's like, Something bad's going to happen to that leader, and somewhere in the, the corner of your heart, you're like, but da not Daniel. Daniel cares. I want to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. I want to see Putin in heaven. I want to see Biden or Trump in heaven. It doesn't matter the person, their actions or policies. He sees them as lost. Ministers care about the loss. He cared about the reprobate. Ministers also can explain God's word. In verse 20, Daniel begins to give it to him. The tree you saw, which grew, became strong, so that the top reached the heaven. And Deanna read this section, and he gets to verse 22. He says, it's you. And he begins to give him the meaning. And there's, there's a sense of what I want to say to you is, you need to know God's word. How can I appeal to you for that? Because when you go out there and you're God's agent, the, the greatest weapon you have, yes, live it out in your own life, but eventually it comes to a question and it comes to conversation and you have to be able to take this book, God's word, the counsel of God, and apply it to the aspects of life, to, to what's going on. Daniel can do it. He has studied. He's a smart guy. But whatever level you're at, grow in God's word. When you get in the New Testament, it says that it's God's word that is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to rightly divide between joint and marrow to discern. And there's a lot in life today that's difficult to discern. So the place we should go is God's word. Help us discern all of these, the craziness that's going on. Ministers can do that. They can handle God's word. They, it's like grabbing a sword. They know how to use the sword. Do you? You must Build into your life time to grow in that. Ministers then also, they have the courage to speak truth. Verse 27, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. I think I put that in there because of the cancel culture of today. The cancel culture makes us kind of go backwards. and I don't want to say anything. I don't have to deal with the repercussions that might come out of that. But at some place, somewhere, we have to have the courage 
to talk about what is true and accurate to a lost world. Nebuchadnezzar has the power to smash Daniel. Yet in the moment, he's going to give him the truth because he hopes that God will use it. John Piper wrote, Christian courage is the willingness to say and do the right thing regardless of the earthly cost. Courage is indispensable for the spreading and preserving of the truth of Christ. Ministers discern and know when they need to be courageous to say truth. And lastly, I put in here that sifting happens through God's word. The experience are so helpful to Nebuchadnezzar, but we need that rightly dividing. Sometimes we rely too much on experiences. There are some faith practices, denominations, where the emphasis is more on the experience and not the word. But the word is what is sharper than any two-edged sword. Experience is something that we have to discern in and of themselves. Was that really from God or not? And here, through the Bible, you've got all these time periods where there are a lot of people that didn't read, the people didn't have God's word, but over time, the letters were collected. They were put together eventually into what we have today is the Bible. Now we have God's word. The greatest emphasis we should have for rightly dividing should come out of this because I know it's from God. You can come and tell me, I think God is saying this to me to tell you, well, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. Is it from God? But this I know is from God. I know it is. Ministers work using God's word. That's how sifting is. And now Deanna read that passage. I have a, a slide to kind of illustrate. There's the great tree that represents Nebuchadnezzar. Now remember, the first dream was this, this big uh, statue. That statue represented and was symbolic of power and might. This is symbolic of prosperity. There's a richness in growth and how big it is. And it produces like a fruit and shade and to animals that find themselves in it. And it's large and pros prosperous, right? And this is the dream that was given to him. Now, as we move forward through the passage, we're going to see what was its interpretation. And the way I've laid this out in our point. So we have a, a kind of a, a faith that, that thrives on experiences, but then God's going to come and sift through us to draw out the things that shouldn't be there. And if you let it stay there, it'll destroy you. It'll challenge your faith in the Most High God. That's what it's going to do to Nebuchadnezzar. It's what it can do to you. So this point I titled, How to Let Sin Destroy Your Life. If you want to be like Nebuchadnezzar, who's going to walk through seven years of living like an animal to take God to break you, then this is, this is the pattern you're going to use. I'm going to give it to you because this is what Nebuchadnezzar does. And here's number one. Ignore the warning God's word gives you. The whole thing is a warning. He says in verse 23, because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree, destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the, the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, 
You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you. Why? Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. There's something in Nebuchadnezzar's heart that says, everything about my life I've made. I'm a self-made guy. I've relied on my cunningness, my military tactfulness, my ruthlessness. I'm a self-made guy. There's a pride there that takes God and puts him over here to the side. Yeah, I got to come to God in dreams and these kinds of things, but that's inside of him still. And this is what's being said in the dream. And there's, there's a warning. The dream is a warning, but even Daniel is a warning. King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. The tree represents prosperity. We're going to chop down that prosperity unless you do. There's two things he says. He uses the word buy. You want to lengthen it? You got to do this. One, you got to practice righteousness. Stop sinning and practice righteousness. Number two, he says, is you got to be gracious and merciful to those that you're oppressing. Those are the two things he kind of gives him. You got to do these things. And there's a way in which, so that is God's words to him. And there's a way in which I can kind of lay it out to everyone here, right? There's something maybe underneath it that we can't see in that sandbox, right? And God's going to sift it out. Here's the counsel of God's word. Are you going to take it and let it speak into your life and make the change that's needed? Because a lot of us are like Nebuchadnezzar. We'll worship. We'll, we'll say, most high God. But there's an aspect where we say, I'm, I'm king of this area. I'm the boss. I don't want God's word to come over here and speak into this. And whether it's with our relationships where he says, this is how your relationships should be. Or money or power, whatever, whatever. It's going to be different. Not everyone's the same struggles that we have. But God's word is speaking to him. And number one, how do we let sin destroy our life? Ignore the warning that God's word gives you. And number two, waste the time that God gives you. It may be that God's word speaking to you right now. You know what that is. Or God brings someone into your life who sees it and they take God's word and apply it. Hey, I've noticed this. I love you, brother. And they speak into your life. Whatever it is, when that happens, there's a time period where you can make a change. And what the phenomenal thing I see in the story is that God gives Nebuchadnezzar an entire year. Twelve months go by, it says. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of twelve months. He's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon... And the king answered and said, and I stopped there for a second, and I just, there's the 12 months. He's going to ignore the warning. He's not going to take God's word to heart. He's going to waste a lot of time. And number three, he's going to allow sin to be present. As it says in the passage, he's walking on that rooftop, and he says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal resident, and for the glory of my majesty... Now, I was reading about Babylon. You know, Babylon was a phenomenal city. I don't know if you travel around and, and you visit cities. And you're like, I really love this city. I like this about that city. Babylon was the city. No city equaled it at this time period. He had done a lot of 
uh, things to it. Oh, that sounded so low. <laughs> Stuff. Like, for example, uh, you, you might have heard about one of the seven wonders of the world was, was there, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon. He had built these terraces, and he had built aqueducts to flow water in to this area and, and grew these big gardens. They had created natural air conditioning. Somehow the wind would come into this and flow through these little um, um, channels into buildings where they would be cooled by them. It was a phenomenal city. And here he is walking on the rooftop and he's looking at all of it. And what comes out of his heart is all about him. It, is, is it not me who's built all of this? And why? For my majesty. It's a testimony. And do you remember, go backwards in time, the Most High God came down and said, you're the head of gold and it's me, the, the God of the universe, who's given you all of this Somehow he's taken that and put it over there and said, no, no, it's me. I did it. And pride, there's the pride, right? He allows sin to be present and he has forgotten God's watching. I noticed that in the, in the dream, it, it talks about this watcher, right? There's a watcher and he's watching. And then he comes down and chops the tree down. So he's watching the actions and then comes down and Sent by God, going to chop it down. And we tend to forget, especially when we, we feel like we're self-made people, that God is watching. He can see all the way into our hearts. He knows our thoughts and our minds. We cannot hide anything from Him, and He's watching. So how does sin destroy our life? This is the pattern. We ignore God's Word, the warnings that are there. We waste time. We allow sin to be present. An entire year has gone by for Him. And we forget that God is watching. And then we got to watch how compromise brings about loss. Did I skip a slide? Where's the, where's the tree? Show me the tree. There it is. This is what he's described. The watcher comes down and chops the tree. It's a representation of, of his prosperity. And there he is on the ground, cut off from the very thing that gives him life. But what's interesting, it's like, it says that, the, see the two pieces of metal rings around the stump? There's a way in which I'm going to preserve the kingdom. The kingdom won't be overthrown. It's still going to be there. There's a preservation of that kingdom, but you have been chopped down. In the same way that the birds and all them came under your shade, they're going to scatter. And there, he, there it is on the ground. And so as you walk through this, God is going to answer him. It says, while the words were still in the king's mouth... Glory of my majesty, there it's coming out of his mouth. There fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar. To you it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and it says it was fulfilled. And you look at, go back a slide. You look at the uh, white lettering there. Look at what he lost. And last week I went through a whole series of biblical characters who compromised in their life and loss came about. With, with Nebuchadnezzar, he loses a lot. He loses the kingdom. He's driven away. He loses community. 
He loses his home. He's living with the, the, the animals. He obviously loses his reputation because he's a crazy guy. And he loses time. There's seven periods of time that go by. All because he ignored God's word. And then as you move through that, go back to the, the tree. There he is. The, yeah, that's fine. The wildness of Nebuchadnezzar. Go to the guy. Go to the guy. This is an artist's rendition. You can see his toes have got the long, long toenails there like claws. His, his hair has grown out. And where do they get the idea for that? That comes right out of the verses. It says he was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. This is how God is going to break his pride. He becomes this, the greatest man on the planet, reduced to a wild animal. Now, I looked up the uh, medical terms here for what happened to him. Monomania, one part of, no, of normal human functioning doesn't work while all the rest is operating. Lycanthropy comes from two words. Lycan means wolf. Anthrop Anthropos is man. It's like, like the wolf man. He's not a werewolf, but he's like an animal man. And this is what he's been reduced to. And see, I think part of the lesson is that it has application to us. Because the pattern for us today would be God's word speaks to us. We waste our time. We allow sin to remain. We forget about God. And then God's going to move. He's going to sift. He's going to find the shard of glass in there. And he's going to make sure it gets removed because you're his son. You're his daughter. And he loves you. And he does not want faith to be threatened. He wants all our faith in him. Not partial faith and faith in other things. This is how God's work. It brings us to the end. And what's going to happen? Well, the seven periods of time are going to pass. And in verse 34, it says, at, <clears throat> at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And he uses words in there like his will, his dominion, his kingdom from generation to generation, the most high God. And it's it's like you go backwards and there was a little bit of that, but now you see a broadening of that. There's more words and he's rooting himself, grounding himself deeper into that belief and thought. God had to take the pride out and had to remove it so that this kind of faith could grow larger within him. And I just kind of put here, you see a heart change, you see words change, and even his prosperity changes. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. He was already 
the greatest. But after God has worked in him and he's yielded himself now to God, he's even greater. And that reminds me of the verse that says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builder builds in vain. And we work in the flesh so much. We try to make our businesses work and make relationships work. And we take our money and we, we're going to be our own counsel on how to do it in and, and all these ways. And we're really just, it's just us. We're working in the flesh. We haven't come before God and put ourselves before him and said, these are the plans that I, I would like and give them over to God. I, I like even in the book of James, it talks about these two guys who are going to start a business and, and they are criticized by James. They have a great business plan. They're going to go to this city. They're going to do this thing. They're going to make some money. And it says they're going to fail because it's all in the flesh. It wasn't that the plan was bad or evil. It's that they want to do it by leaving God out. Don't leave him out. He's sovereign in all things. When you leave him out, it means you are functioning on your own wisdom and your own counsel. Take whatever wisdom and counsel you have, put it before the throne of God. Nebuchadnezzar's doing that, and he's even greater. God comes down and he works with whatever the skills and wisdom and counsel you are, that you have, and he builds you up even bigger than you thought you could be. How could the greatest man, now suddenly he's even greater? His prosperity is bigger? Honor changes. He's honoring God, not himself. And knowledge changes. This is what I'm going to finish with. I want you to look at the very last phrase. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. He's honoring him now. It's going upward. For all his works are right and his ways are just. Now look what he says at the very end. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. should underline that. Because it's a message to all of us. And what he's saying is, God has the ability to remove whatever shard of glass is in your heart. Don't ever think he won't or he can't. He is able. In his time, he will come in his way with a minister, with his word, and he will sift it out of you. But if you can respond beforehand, you don't walk through all of this that he did. You don't walk through the seven periods of time being made down. Now, that's not going to happen to all of us. He does it in different ways, but he's telling us something. There's a new belief in him, a new knowledge. First, the knowledge was about dreams. Your God can do that. Then the knowledge was, oh, your God is greater than fire, but still the biggest guy is himself. Now he's got a new knowledge, isn't it? The new knowledge is, I'm not as big as you, God, and you are able to to bring me to the point to say it. And if you can't say that, if you, if, and the way that you probably say it is this, I believe in him, but on some areas of my life, I'm going to take my own counsel. Well, you just said you're bigger than him, and he'll sift it out of you. Years ago in London, there was a large gathering of notables for a concert Lots of good mu musicians were there, but a famous preacher was there. His name was Caesar Milan. And he, what caught his attention was a, a female singer, Charlotte Elliott. She was phenomenal. He went up to her afterwards. He said to her, the conversation went something like this. I'm summarizing it, but it's, you are great. 
If you gave your life to Christ, you would be such a powerful tool for His kingdom. But you are a sinner. You need His grace, and you need to know that you're a sinner, ask for forgiveness, and put your faith in Christ. Well, it offended her. I mean, just imagine being like a modern-day artist today, and you've done this concert, and you, did, you waxed eloquently, and you come down the stage, and there's some preacher going, you're a sinner. And she stormed away, and he, he said, I don't mean to offend. He said something like, I'll be praying that God uses these words. And she went home, and as the story goes, she couldn't get it out of her mind, the words that he said. She closed her eyes and went to bed. She could see the face of the preacher saying those things. The guy was using it. Finally, it broke her down. She gave her life to Christ. She sat down at a table. She wrote these words. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Do you recognize that song? It's a famous song. We've sung it. Churches have sung it. Billy Graham's crusade sang it. And God did use her because she finally came to the point where she gave herself to him. Lord, I thank you for this story. Nebuchadnezzar was a, was a prideful man. He didn't want to give all of himself to you. And in a way, that represents all of us, God. We don't want to give all of ourselves to you. We have experiences of faith, just like Nebuchadnezzar. And along the way, we're, we're even worshiping, we're saying things, but we hide something within us that says, I'm not going to let go of this. I'm not going to let you be the boss of this part of my life. And yet you will sift it out of us. You will... You will not let your children hold something within them that's going to bring about the death of their faith in you. You will challenge that, and it can be hard. And I think the prayer is that we would yield to you beforehand, before we go through an experience like Nebuchadnezzar. Who wants to give up seven years of their life? We may not be made animals, but some, I know some who have, not yielded, and they ended up in prison for seven years. They lost time. They were made lower in a different way than Nebuchadnezzar, but you know what's in our hearts. I pray that we would yield all of ourselves to you, that you would use ministers, and maybe some of those that are sitting here today, they are going to be the minister that you use, that we would have the courage to step up and say what needs to be said, as, as Peter framed it, with grace and gentleness because we love the sinner. We love the reprobate. I commit this up to you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll finish as we sing.